Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Now let us go upward in imagination, far, far beyond the tops of the highest mountains, beyond the moon and sun, and outward in space until we reach a point in the northern heavens millions and millions of miles away, directly above and equally distant from all points in the ecliptic, or path in which our Earth travels yearly round the sun. Then we should have that sort of comprehensive view of the solar system, which is necessary if we are to visualise as a whole the working of the vast machine and the motions, sizes and distances of all the bodies that comprise it. Of such a stupendous mechanism our Earth is part. Or in lieu of this, let us attempt to get in mind a picture of the solar system by means of Sir William Herschel's illustration. Choose any well-levelled field. On it, place a globe two feet in diameter. This will represent the sun. Mercury will be represented by a grain of mustard seed on the circumference of a circle 164 feet in diameter for its orbit. Venus, a pea on a circle, of 284 feet in diameter. The Earth, also a pea, on a circle of 430 feet. Mars, a rather larger pin's head, on a circle of 654 feet. The asteroids, grains of sand in orbits of 1,000 to 1,200 feet. Jupiter, a moderate-sized orange, in a circle of nearly half a mile across, Saturn, a small orange on a circle of four-fifths of a mile, Uranus, a full-sized cherry or small plum upon the circumference of a circle more than a mile and a half, and finally, Neptune, a good-sized plum on a circle about two miles and a half in diameter. To imitate the motions of the planets in the above-mentioned orbits, Mercury must describe its own diameter in 41 seconds, Venus in 4 minutes and 14 seconds, the Earth in 7 minutes, Mars in 4 minutes and 48 seconds, Jupiter in 2 minutes and 56 seconds, Saturn in 3 minutes and 13 seconds, Uranus in 2 minutes and 16 seconds, and Neptune in 3 minutes and 30 seconds. Now, let us look earthward from our imaginary station near the North Pole of the ecliptic. All these planetary bodies would be seen to be travelling eastward round the sun, that is, in a counterclockwise direction, or contrary to the motions of the hands of a timepiece. Their orbits or paths of motion are very nearly circular, and the sun is practically at the centre of all of them, 
except Mercury and Mars, of Venus and Neptune almost at the absolute centre. The planes of all their orbits are very nearly the same as that of the ecliptic, or plane in which the Earth moves. These and many other resemblances and characteristics suggest a uniformity of origin, which comports with the idea of a family. And so the whole is spoken of as the solar system, or the sun and his family of planets. In addition to the nine bodies already specified, the solar system comprises a great variety of other lesser bodies. No less than 26 moons or satellites tributary to the planets, and travelling round them in various periods as the moon does round our Earth. Then between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter are many thousands of asteroids, so-called or minor planets. About 1,000 of them have actually been discovered and their paths accurately calculated. And at all sorts of angles with the planetary orbits are the paths of hundreds of comets. Delicate, flimsy bodies of a wholly different constitution from the planets and which now and then blaze forth in the sky. Their trail appears much like the beam of a searchlight, and compelling for the first time the attention of everybody. Connected with the comets and doubtless originally parts of them, are uncounted millions of millions of meteors, which for a time become part of the solar system. Their minute masses being attracted to the planets upon which they fall those hitting the Earth being visible to us as familiar shooting stars. We next follow the story of astronomy through the solar system, beginning with the Sun itself and proceeding outwards through his family of planets. Now much more numerous and vastly more extended than it was to the ancient world, or indeed till within a century and a half of our own day, the Sun and observing it. As Lord of Day, King of the Heavens, mankind in the ancient world adored the sun. By their researches into the epoch of the Assyrians, Hittites and Phoenicians and other early peoples now passed from Earth, archaeologists have unearthed many monuments that evidence the veneration in which the early peoples who inhabited Egypt and Asia Minor many thousands of years ago, held the sun. A striking example is found in the architecture of early Egyptian temples, on the lintels of which are carved representations of the winged globe or the winged solar disk. And there is a bare possibility that the wings of the globe were suggested by a type of the solar corona as glimpsed by the ancients. Little knew they about the distance and the size of the sun, but the effects of his light and heat upon all vegetal and animal life were obvious to them. Doubtless this formed the basis for their worship of the sun. Occasional huge spots must have been visible to the naked eye, and the sun's corona was seen at rare intervals. Plutarch and Philostratus describe it very much as we see it today. How completely dependent mankind is upon the sun and its powerful radiations, only the science of the present day can tell us. 
By means of the sun's heat, the forests of early geologic ages were enabled to wrest carbon from the atmosphere and store it in forms later converted by nature's chemistry into peat and coal. Through processes but imperfectly understood, the varying forms of vegetable life are empowered to conserve. From air and soil, nitrogen and other substances suitable for and essential to the life maintenance of animal creatures. Breezes that bring rain and purify the air, the energy of water held under storage in stream and dam and fall, trade winds facilitating commerce between the continents, oceanic currents modifying coastal climates, the violence of tornado, typhoon and water spout, together with other manifestations of natural forces, all can be traced back to their origin in the tremendous heating power of the solar rays. In everything material, the sun is our constant and bountiful benefactor. If his light and heat were withdrawn, practically every form of human activity on this planet would come to an early end. How far away is the sun? What is the size of the sun? These are questions that astronomers of the present day can answer with accuracy. So closely do they know the sun's distance that it is employed as their yardstick of the sky, or unit of celestial measurement. Many methods have been utilised in asserting the distance of the sun, and the remarkable agreement among them all is very extraordinary. Some of them depend on pure geometry, and the basic measure which we make from the earth is not the distance of the sun directly, but we find out how far away Venus is during a transit of Venus, for example, or how far away Mars is, or some of the asteroids are at their closer oppositions. Then it is possible to calculate how far away the sun is, because one measurement of distance in the solar system affords us the scale on which the whole structure is built. But perhaps the simplest method of getting the sun's distance is by the velocity of light. 186,300 miles a second. From eclipses of Jupiter's moon, we know that light takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds to pass from sun to earth. So that the sun's distance is the simple product of the two, or 93 millions of miles. Once this fundamental unit is established, we have a firm basis on which to build up our knowledge of the distances, the sizes and motions of the heavenly bodies, especially those that compromise the solar system. We can at once ascertain the size of the sun, which we do by measuring the angle which it fills, that is, the sun's apparent diameter. Finding this to be something over a half a degree in arc, the processes of elementary trigonometry tell us that the sun's globe is 865,000 miles in diameter. For nearly a century, this has been accurately measured with the greatest care, and diameters taken in every direction are found to be equal and invariably the same. So we conclude that the sun is a perfect sphere. And so far as our instruments can inform us, its actual diameter is not subject to appreciable change. The vastness of the sun's volume commands our attention. 
At his diameter, he is a hundred and ten times that of the earth. His mere size or volume is a hundred and ten times a hundred and ten times a hundred and ten, or one thousand three hundred thousand times that of the earth, because the volumes of spheres are in proportion as the cubes of their diameters. If the material that composes the sun were as heavy as those that make up the earth, it would take 1,300,000 Earths to weigh as much as the sun does. But by a method which we need not detail here, the sun's actual weight or mass is found to be only 300,000, more nearly 330,000, times greater than the Earth's. So we must infer that, bulk for bulk, the component materials of the sun are about one-fourth lighter than those of the earth. That is about one and one and a half times as dense as water. To look at this in another way, it is known that a body falling freely towards the earth from outer space would acquire a speed of seven miles a second, whereas if it were to fall towards the sun instead, the velocity would be 383 miles a second on reaching his surface. If all the other bodies of the solar system, that is, the Earth and Moon, all the planets and their satellites, the comets, and all were to be fused together in a single globe, it would weigh only 1,750th as much as the Sun does. At the surface, however, the disproportion of gravity is not so great. Because of the Sun's vast size, it is only about 28 times greater on the Sun than on the Earth. And instead of a body falling 16 feet the first second as here, it would fall 444 feet there. Pendulums of a clock on the Sun would swing five times for every tick here, and an athlete's running high jump would be scaled down to three inches. Let us next inquire into the amount of the sun's light and heat, and the enormous high temperature of a body whose heat is so intense even at the vast distance at which we are from it. The intensity of its brightness is such that we have no artificial source of light that we can readily compare it with. In the sky, the next object in brightness is the full moon but that gives less than half a millionth part as much light as the sun. A sperm candle burning 120 grains an hour is the standard. And if we compare this with the sun when overhead and allow for light absorbed by the atmosphere, we get a number of 1,575 with 24 ciphers following it to express the candle power of the sun's light. If we interpose the intense calcium light or an electric arc light between the eye and the sun, these artificial sources will look like black spots on the disk. Indeed, the sun is nearly four times brighter than the crater, or brightest part of the electric arc. The late Professor Langley at a steelworks in Pennsylvania once compared direct sunlight with the dazzling stream of molten metal from a Bessemer converter. But bright as it was, sunlight was found to be 5,000 times brighter. 
equally enormous as the heat of the sun. Our intensest sources of artificial heat do not exceed 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but the temperature at the sun's surface is probably not less than 16,000 degrees Fahrenheit. One square metre of his surface radiates enough heat to generate 100,000 horsepower continuously. At our vast distance of 93 millions of miles, the sun's heat received by the Earth is still powerful enough to melt annually a layer of ice on the Earth more than 100 feet in thickness. If the solar heat that strikes the deck of a tropical steamship could be fully utilised in propelling it, the speed would reach at least 10 knots. Many attempts have been made in tropical and subtropical climates to utilise the sun's heat directly for power. And Ericsson in Sweden, Mushu in France and Schumann in Egypt have built successful and efficient solar engines. Necessary intermission of their power at night, as well as on cloudy days, will preclude their industrial introduction until present fuels have advanced very greatly in cost. All regions in the sun's disk radiate heat uniformly, and the sun's own atmosphere absorbs so much that we should receive 1.7 times more heat if it were removed. So far as it is known, solar light and heat are radiated equally in all directions, so that only a very minute fraction of the total amount ever reaches the Earth, that is, one two thousand two hundred millionth part of the whole. Indeed, all the planets and other bodies of the solar system together receive only one one hundred millionth part. The vast remainder is, so far as we know, effectively wasted. It is transformed, but what becomes of it, and whether it ever reappears in any other form, we cannot say. How is this inconceivably vast output of energy maintained practically invariable throughout the centuries? Many theories have been advanced, but only one has received nearly universal assent. That is of secular contraction of the sun's huge mass upon itself. Shrinkage means evolution of heat, and it is found by calculation that if the sun were to contract its diameter by shrinking only 250 feet per year, the entire output of solar heat might thus be accounted for. So distant is the sun, and so slow this rate of contraction that centuries must elapse before we could verify this theory by actual measurements. Meanwhile, the progress of physical research on the structure and elemental properties of matter has brought to light the existence of highly active internal forces, which are doubtless intimately concerned in the enormous output of radiant energy, though the mechanism of its maintenance is as yet known only in part. Abbott, from many years' observation of the solar constant at Washington on Mount Wilson and in Algeria, finds certain evidence of fluctuation in the solar heat received by the Earth. It cannot be a local phenomenon due to its disturbances in our atmosphere, but must originate in causes entirely extraneous to the Earth. 
interposition of meteoric dust might conceivably account for it, but there is sufficient evidence to show that the changes must be attributed to the sun itself. The sun, then, is a variable star, and it has not only a period connected with the periodicity of the sunspots, but also an irregular, non-periodic variation during a cycle of a week or ten days. Though sometimes longer, and occasioning irregular fluctuations of 2 to 10% of the total radiation, radiation is found to increase with the spottedness. Attempts have been made on the basis of the contraction theory to find out the past history of the sun and to predict its future. Probably 20 to 50 millions of years in the past represents the life of the sun much as it is at present, and if solar radiation in the future is maintained substantially as now, the sun will have shrunk to one half its present diameter in the next five million years. So far then as heat and light from the sun are concerned, the sun may continue to support life on earth not to exceed 10 million years in the future. But the sun's own existence, independently of the orbs of the system dependent upon it, might continue for indefinite millions of aeons before it would ever become a cold, dead globe. Indeed, in the present state of science, we cannot be sure that it is destined to reach that condition with incalculable time. A few words on observing the sun, an object much neglected by amateurs. On account of the intense light, a very slight degree of optical power is sufficient. Indeed, a piece of window glass, smoked in a candle flame with uniform graduation from end to end, will be found worthwhile in a beginner's daily observation of the sun. The glass should be smoked densely enough at one end, so that the sunlight as seen through it will not dazzle the eye on the clearest days. At the other end of the glass, the degree of smoked film should not be quite so dense, so that the sun can be examined on hazy, foggy, or partly cloudy days. An occasional naked eye spot will reward the patient observer. If a small spy glass, opera glass, or field glass is at hand, excellent views of the sun may be had by mounting the glass so that it can be held steadily pointed on the sun, and then viewing the disc by projection on a white card or sheet of paper. Care must be taken to get a good focus on this projected image, and then the faculae or whitish spots or mottling near the sun's edge will usually be well seen. By moving the card further away from the eyepiece, a larger disc may be obtained, in effect, a higher degree of magnification. The care must be used not to increase it too much. Keep direct sunlight outside the tube from falling on the card where the image is to be examined. This is conveniently done by cutting a large hole the size of the brass cell of the object glass through a sheet of corrugated straw board and slipping this on over the cell. In this way, the spots of the sun can be examined with ease and safety to the eye. For large instruments, a special type of eyepiece is provided, known as a heloscope. 
which disposes of the intense heat rays that are harmful to the eye. Frequent examination of the eyepiece should be made, and the eyepiece cooled if necessary. That part of the sun's surface under observation is known as the photosphere, that is, the part which radiates light. If the atmosphere admits the use of high magnifying powers, the structure of the photosphere will be found more and more interesting the higher the power employed. It is an irregularly mottled surface, showing a species of rice grain structure under fairly high magnification. These grains are grouped irregularly and are about 500 miles across. Under fine conditions of vision, they may be subdivided into granules. The faculae, or white spots, are sometimes elevations above the general solar level. They have occasionally been seen projecting outside the limb or edge of the disc.